Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cyber Inspiration Podcast. My name is Evgeny. I've been around security for the last 20 years and have a lot of experience working with a variety of cybersecurity vendors. My main work is vendor consulting and cybersecurity advisory for companies. As part of my passion in technology and cyber, I always intrigued to learn how companies start. I started the podcast to understand the thinking process and what motivated people to start their own company. This podcast is also affiliated with Security Architecture Podcast. I have a pleasure today to talk to Oliver about his journey and his new company. Oliver, can you please tell me about yourself and the company? Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Pangea is just under two years old. We started back in October of 21 and we've been growing fast ever since. And one of the things that we're trying to do is really consolidate the really complicated, fragmented world of security products down to a simple set of APIs for developers that can be embedded into their applications. And this is not your first rodeo. So you've been in cybersecurity for a long time. So you know how to bring companies from zero to being acquired. And I'm wondering for this particular company, what was the motivation? Like what happened in your life that triggered the idea to start this particular company? Yeah, it's a good question. I'd say the idea actually started growing over the course of about a year. I, I think what we really saw is the entire kind of world of compute evolving, like how you build applications was changing. You had companies like Stripe that delivered payments as a service. So if you wanted to process credit cards, you would go to Stripe, like you wouldn't go try to get a payment gateway and interface with banks or payment gateways to process credit cards anymore. They basically reduced the super complex activity down to a simple API Similarly, companies like Twilio did that for communications. And so they turned sending text messages or emails now into a very simple set of APIs that a developer could embed very easily without having to do that on their own. In cybersecurity, we've had some examples of that. You obviously have authentication with companies like Auth0 that have become leaders in authentication. But then there's like a long set of other features that a developer needs to create a secure application and to deliver a secure user experience. Everything from audit logging to uh, secrets management, to authorization, to authentication, to entitlement and licensing management, scanning files to see if they're malicious, checking user-generated content to see if it contains PII. There, there's almost an endless list right, of these security building blocks that a cloud app needs, and there wasn't a place to get them. So we really saw an opportunity to take this model that was really successful in other verticals like payments and communications and apply it to cybersecurity. And interestingly enough, some of these pieces existed, but they didn't exist in one place, right? So you'd have to go to a variety of open source and a bunch of different vendors to get these functions today. So if we could provide one place, a single source for a developer to get them, wouldn't that be powerful? And that's really where the name Pangea came from is that concept of like, kind of consolidating the entire world of cybersecurity into a simple set of APIs. This is a very good idea. And I hope a lot of companies will not try to develop this by themselves and actually use a very built system already. How was the validation process that the idea will kick in and the customers will actually buy what you're trying to sell in, when you're trying to build? Yeah, look, it's that's always a good question, right? I think part of that is being when you start a company, it's instinct and gut. You almost have to think of yourself as the ideal customer. Like if I had this today, like would I want to use it? And typically that's where the initial idea comes from, right? Is like our last company, Phantom, where we created the security orchestration and automation space really came from the concept of shoot, like oh, there's all these cybersecurity products, like somebody should tie them together and automate 
there's to events across these products. Similarly, in this case, it's almost like inverting what we did with Phantom, which connected to many APIs. We now see the opportunity to deliver all of these security interfaces from one place. So we had the idea, we believed it would be powerful. And then we kind of proceeded to validate it with a lot of other CISOs and investors in the industry. And almost universally, once people understood that, look, this is like Stripe or Twilio, but for cybersecurity, it was a pretty easy story to tell and a lot of really positive reception across the CISO community. We've now had over 70 conversations with CISOs on the concept and almost universally positive, even though the CISO is not the buyer for this, the development team is, they still have a role typically in endorsing what engineering is doing in terms of building a secure product. They may or may not run the AppSec team. Um, they may or may not have budget authority or ability to buy for these products for the development team, but they still have a vested interest in protecting their companies. For the people that are listening and want to start their own company, what would you recommend to find and validate the idea for the CISOs? Because we all know CISOs are busy people. They're not going to just take the call from anyone. Yeah, look, it's gotten tough, right? I mean, a number I heard recently is there's 3,300 cybersecurity companies now. And so, yeah, CISOs are just fatigued by the the volume. Look, I think you have to do your best, that you, the best that you can to get to those to that audience, right? Being in the space obviously helps and having some credibility in the space helps as well. Leveraging relationships, right? I think the none of these folks are going to respond to a cold call. Like you have to find someone that they know in one way or another to get a warm introduction to that person, right? In the CISO role. So that's really the most effective way is getting an introduction potentially from future investors that may be interested in helping you or funding you, right? They have connections in many cases that you may not have. And even though they haven't invested yet, they still want to help you validate your idea with those introductions. And at the same time, they want to show their value in providing those types of introductions, right? Because the space is still very competitive from an investor standpoint. And despite the economy today in, in April of 2023, there's still a lot of money flowing into cybersecurity. And so VCs and investors are competing for the best startups and the best ideas so that I would leverage them to the extent that you can to get those introductions. Do you, in your perspective, do you need a written code when you're going and validating the idea or you need just an idea and explain the idea on PowerPoint? Uh, look, I think code helps, right? If you've already built something, that's great. I don't think it's necessarily required. Our last company, like we built that, we didn't really have any code in the first year, but through our investors and through relationships, we had many CISO conversations. And it was really more about, look, this is the vision. If it existed, would you use it? Right. And that ultimately seeded this whole idea of like, how do you automate cybersecurity operations? And it raised a lot of questions on, well, shoot, do we want to automate these decisions? And what if we're automating the wrong decision? Do you want to do it faster? And a lot of great feedback, right? Even before we had a product, but then when we had a product, it validated the vision and reaffirmed that, okay, this team can build it. It's now a legitimate, credible idea because you could imagine right now in the world of AI, imagine like AI trying to manage the security of your infrastructure, your environment, right? That, that's probably the next step. There's a lot of fear in anything that makes decisions automatically. So that validation really helped. And we didn't have a product in that case. With Pangea, we're finding... Having a product is really necessary because we're solving an immediate problem that if we don't have the tools available, then 
it's really somewhat of a moot conversation because we need to be talking to the development team. We need to catch them at the time where they actually have a problem that we can solve versus we're trying to sell you another traditional enterprise security product, right? We're selling APIs now and security services just like AWS. While we're not really going to technical aspects a lot on this particular podcast, it's Cyber Inspiration. This is where we have security architecture podcast. I'm wondering for your particular case, is your product only for a new companies or existing companies can switch on what they do and move to your product? Yeah, it's really a combination of both. Obviously, new companies are a great place to start because they don't have anything and it's a clean slate, right? So if you're building a new cloud application from scratch, you need to essentially have authentication, authorization, logging, secrets management, and all of these functions, or else you won't be shipping a cloud product that someone, any enterprise would buy from you. But the, the second aspect though, is that look, if you're an existing company and you either are migrating to the cloud, which a lot of, you know, traditional fortune 1000s are still have a lot of legacy apps that need security embedded in them as well. So there's an opportunity there. And then also look, apps are constantly growing. They're always adding new functions. Like if you're dealing with user file uploads, you want to make sure those are secure. If you're dealing with user generated content, you want to make sure that doesn't contain any malicious artifacts or IOCs in that data. So I think as you're building a new product, like it's, it is a good question because like, just cause you build, it doesn't mean they'll come right. You need to find the customer at kind of the right point in time when they have a pain point or some kind of a trigger event that is leading them to look at you as a solution. Right. And in our case, it's around needing to embed security into their application, whether it's new or existing or evolving. Um, in all of those cases. In other cases, there are things working around and moving around the industry that are forcing trigger events like compliance is this ever evolving world, right? Where you've got 50 countries working on data sovereignty laws and almost every state is working on different privacy laws. So as a developer, like how do you even can, like imagine how to deal with that problem? Like you really, first of all, you don't care, right? You just kind of want it to go away because you want to write cool code. But secondly, like there's no way you're going to learn about this evolving like compliance landscape. So if there's a way to get services that are already compliant out of the box and evolve, wouldn't that be great? Right. So those are, I guess, different examples where I've seen like new products kind of fit in. But then there's examples of where you build it and pe people, it's so busy already, like no, nobody's going to come and you can try the hard as you can and even burn as much money as you can. And they're still not going to come because it's a really crowded space. It's a really crowded category. And to differentiate yourself or distinguish yourself is really difficult. What is the secret about hiring people? Do you have an approach? Do you have a company culture that they need to adapt to? Or you want to kind of figure out if you're going to meet the company culture? Yeah, no, that's a great question. We have a set of company principles that we kind of go by that are focused on hiring and firing, right? It, it happens if someone doesn't fit. And it comes down to like a variety of, of attributes. We break them into four categories. One is the team itself. We expect people to be transparent and trustworthy, accountable and committed, respectful but and humble, right? We don't want any big personalities or attitudes, especially in the early team, right? Everyone really needs to have like a super high EQ, be able to work together effectively. Uh, the second one is leadership, 
right? Management is really flat and anyone in the company should be able to talk to anyone else, right? Having like a complex org structure really doesn't make sense. And we're even seeing that now, right? In some of the FANG companies, as they're trying to flatten that middle management layer out of the company, clear communication, obviously super important at all levels, teamwork, making sure the team's working really closely together. Innovation is the third category, really finding people that are willing to take risks and have proven that they're able to innovate, think outside of the box and like create the future versus just listening to requirements and customer feedback and iterating. Because that's really the hard part of a startup is that I'd say initially most of your innovation is coming from your own instinct as a founder or the founding team on what you would want to use or what that product should look like versus like detailed customer feedback because you don't have a product yet, right? And it's hard to get people to really commit to sitting down and spending like a lot of time with you. You want people that are urgent and driving and driven, and you really want to put your customers first and obviously rely on customer feedback versus on your competitors and trying to react to what they're doing. And that's obviously a big Amazon principle as well. And then the fourth category is really culture, right? Finding people that are genuine, authentic, that are learning and also teaching others, right? Because you learn by teaching and helping others to get better. And then having a sense of humor, right? This should be fun and we should make it fun. It's serious, obviously, like it can get really serious, but we want to try to make it as, as fun as possible. Thank you. Very good point. You mentioned interesting things about innovation and how it should come. In many times, you're going to a customer with a product already and the customer says, I want this feature. So what do you do? Chicken or the egg? Do you tell us, yes, we have this feature and going back and developing quickly? Or are you being basically trustfully, yeah, guys, we don't have this feature, but we have it to develop for you if you're going to buy the solution. What's your approach? Yeah, I think, look, the latter, I think being trustworthy, honest and transparent is really the way to go here. I mean, it's it's really hard to build. If it's maybe it's like a super simple feature and you could build it overnight, that's one thing, but most things are not that easy. So you want to really be able to go and build it correctly, come back and impress them with, hopefully you're building it quickly, right? But it depends on, I think, on the size of the feature and how complex it is. Thank you. Is there is a secret or is there is a new way how to approach this task management? Because there's a lot of stuff that are urgent and everything needs to be done. Like, what do you personally do to make sure you prioritize what's more important? Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because my typical day is I get probably dozens of emails of other companies trying to sell me things, right? And there was a time where I used to respond you know, and say, no, thanks. Like, I, you don't even have time for that anymore. And I don't think it's rude to just delete those emails, right? Because it's trying to contact hundreds or thousands of people a day with that approach. So you have to kind of pick your battles and decide like, who are you going to reply to? Where are you going to spend your time? Like managing your mailbox is one thing, right? Like there's a lot of emails that simply don't need a response and that don't require action. It should be obvious what requires your attention, right? There's always going to be something that's a high priority. That's either an urgent issue, whether it's a technology issue or a people issue or a customer issue, Obviously, you want to prioritize customers above everything else and make sure that you're solving customer problems and focused on the customer at all times. And then your people and your team probably second, right? Making sure if there's an issue, you solve that, you know, those issues and make sure the company's running smoothly and then focus on the product requirements. 
Choosing where to focus on the product side is typically driven again by a combination and early on by a combination of instinct and customer feedback, right? I think you want to mix those two because you won't necessarily have a ton of early customer feedback until you have a product and you have people using it, right? But you should definitely have a a design partner program, right? These are people like early, early adopters, early companies that you verbally have talked with about helping you briefing them, let's say every few weeks, every few months on product requirements, what the product's going to look like with the intention that they may one day become a customer. Not, not all of them will, but they're people that you respect that have an opinion that either have as much experience as you do or more, right? Or are buyers in the industry and are buying, in this case, security products. Let's dive into a very interesting topic about sales. And it's related to task management as well. Because in many situations, as a CEO of the company, you're the first and the main salesperson. But the moment the company is growing, there is a way for you to kind of fall back a bit and let other people to sell that you're hiring later on. What do you do? Like, how do you let go? How do you let go of the baby that you trust other people to sell and have the knowledge that you have? Yeah, I think it's all about when you bring your sales leader on or the team on, right? I think typically you want to have like the CEO founding team should be closing the first million, few million, even in some cases of business themselves, right? And that may or may not be possible. It depends on your obviously ASP and the price of the product and what that looks like and what validation you have and whether you feel like you have product market fit. Uh, but for like a typical enterprise security product where you may be demanding a uh, hundred thousand plus six figure plus per deal, you should be able to get the first few done yourself, right? And validate that this is a repeatable model. You can bring on a sales leader. I think some teams, if you've done it before, right? The invest your investors may trust you to bring someone on even sooner, right? If there's a belief that this is something that we know is going to work, it's already proven to be repeatable. Maybe there's already another company that's proven it's possible. Uh, and that's, I think, both a pro and the con, right? Like as you evolve as a leader, and especially if you've had multiple companies, investors tend to actually trust you more. And that may or may not be a good thing. Like you, you may start skipping steps that you would otherwise take in terms of validating product market fit because you may be able to raise funding faster, maybe able to bring on a sales leader sooner, Right, and then start growing and expanding, even when you may not have that proven, repeatable process in place. But when you're really early, and let's say you're newer in running a company, you probably won't raise money unless you have that validation, right? Unless you have some early deals closed and you've done it yourself. Fair. So this is definitely a delicate approach because you don't want anybody to mess up with the big deals and kind of ruin them for you. Right. And so I think, look, it comes down to also having the right sales leader. When you bring someone on, ideally they have enough ramp time before, you know, they hit the ground and actually are there right as you're getting the confidence that there's product market fit and you have a repeatable process. And so they're spending a few quarters ramping before they're really running independently and building a team, right. And trying to scale the overall go to market side of things. Because uh, they, they need to learn it as well. And obviously, I think there are different levels of sales leaders that have different technical ability. And early on, like I've always looked for someone that has technical ability and sales go-to-market experience. 
you you really need both, especially when you're trying to create a new market, a new category. Later on, you may grow to the point where you have folks that aren't as technical, that are more relationship-based. But in my experience, that just doesn't go well early on in the company building process. We're going to transition to a different topic. We're going to talk about the dark category, the dark side of the business. Because not everything is pink, not everything is always working. And share some stories about when stuff didn't work as you expected. You maybe learned from the process or maybe you just failed and it was just a dark moment with a customer, VC or anything else. Yeah, I mean, one that it, it turned into a success, but it, it took a while to get there is that we started back in 2008 called Immunet. And in, you remember in 2008 is when the economy co- collapsed because of the subprime mortgage crisis and the, the entire world fell. More, Lehman Brothers went out of business. But I happened to leave Symantec at the time deciding, hey, I'm going to go start a next generation cloud-based anti-malware company that's going to put all the detection logic in the cloud with a super lightweight endpoint agent. And we're going to have a consumer business that's freemium-based where you deploy the agent, it's free, and then you can upgrade to a paid version later on and next. And not only was that the worst possible time to leave a Fortune, I think at the time they were Fortune 500 company, Semantic, but it was also a category that didn't yet have a future, right? Antivirus had 50 competitors in it. Despite cloud being the next generation, like it hadn't really hit the mark yet and they hadn't really proven that's where things were going. So imagine us trying to do what CrowdStrike ultimately did and what Silence ultimately did like years before that, in between the antivirus space and this new kind of endpoint EDR space that evolved. And it was really tough, right? We couldn't raise money initially. In my career, I was really unproven at the time coming from a really hardcore engineering background. And then the economy, money wasn't available ended up working for a year in my garage with one other co-founder, Adam O'Donnell, and we kind of built version one of this product uh, and finally raised a few million. And in, in, at the time, it was a Series A. It was like a $3 million Series A, which today is tiny. That's barely even a pre-seed round anymore, right? And it's just, it was really tough, but we kept going. We kept fighting through it. We did finally get the product out. We had hundreds of thousands of users deploying it and using it. But the conversion rate to the paid customer wasn't really hitting either. Uh, we tried to raise a Series B. It was in 2000, end of 2010 at that point. Unsuccessful in doing that because the market, again, still hadn't recovered. The Most of the venture firms didn't see the future in Endpoint yet, even though it was still coming. And we decided to exit the company to SourceFire and... You know, to Marty's credit, Marty was the CEO at Sourcefire, Marty Roush, the founder and CEO. And he really saw the opportunity to take the tech that we had and turn it into an enterprise product that we then sold to the enterprise customer as an endpoint component to the Sourcefire brand and the Sourcefire vision. And so it, it ultimately landed in a great place. They got a great deal for the company. Like everyone actually did well. Like we made some money as founders as well. But it wasn't a huge success, right? We expected to build this multi-billion dollar company and it was going to be great. But fortunately, we hadn't raised that much money to the point where, you know, an exit of 21 million, which by today's standards is small, right? Still resulted in everyone doing well and coming out of that above water. So it can be really tough. And 
ultimately like at that price range, like a technology deal can still happen. Fortunately, right. For raw, pure technology. But if you start raising money beyond that and really going into this larger valuation that you'll never reach you, that's when you start limiting your exit options. So it really, I think taught me that you want to maintain that exit optionality by controlling your valuation and not getting too far ahead of your skis. Thank you. For Oliver personally, when you have a bad days, when you're not in the mood, like what do you do to come back? What is your meditation or what is your sanction kind of recover? Yeah, it's always exercise. I mean, cardio and some weights. Like I think that's, it just burns off the mental. Like I think everyone needs that, especially in these high stress situations, right? You, you can't do this type of work without having some outlet. And I mean, you could go to drinking heavily, but that doesn't really help. So I think exercise is the main thing that really helps. It just gets rid of the stress. Obviously makes you feel better, more confident, healthy. Great. Oliver, thank you very much. Really happy to listen to your story. We work in the past together. Hope we can work together in the future as well. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Take care.